This podcast was recorded in October 2022 and contains strong language and discussions around suicide. Hello, my name is James and welcome to series two of Passing Out, a podcast series in which I have conversations with queer people who've served in the British military before, during and after the ban that stopped LGBTQ plus people being openly queer, a ban that was lifted in the year 2000. Each episode, I'll be talking to somebody who wants to share their experience of what it's like to be LGBTQ plus and serve for your country. Because I think if we don't remember, listen and learn from our country's mistakes, then we can never truly move forwards. This is Passing Out, the podcast. My conversation today is with Elaine Chambers. Elaine uses the pronouns she, her, and identifies as a lesbian and queer. Elaine joined the army in 1982, aged 21, as a student nurse. After qualifying as a staff nurse, she obtained a commission, becoming a junior sister in the rank of lieutenant. In 1987, rumours about her sexuality reached the military police. Elaine was questioned at length, her diaries and letters read, and her associates, past and present, interrogated in the search for evidence against her. Following the decriminalisation of consensual homosexual sex between men in 1967 in the UK, the armed forces was one of the few remaining institutions in which homosexual behaviour was still illegal. After being forced to resign, Elaine met Robert Ely, who had been discharged from the parachute regiment after nearly 20 years of service. And in 1991, they founded Rank Outsiders, a campaign and support group for veterans who shared their experiences. Since leaving the army, Elaine initially struggled to find work that could rival the prospects and camaraderie of her army career and has had nearly 20 different jobs, mostly in nursing. She is now working as a medical administrator for a GP practice and lives in the Isle of Wight. In 2019, Elaine's book, This Queer Angel, was published detailing her life in the army with the blurb saying, For a generation brought up with anti-discrimination laws and equal marriage, These hard-fought battles might seem like ancient history, but Elaine's story reminds us that these freedoms, only recently won, must never be taken for granted. Hello, Elaine. Hello. Let's start right at the very beginning. So as I mentioned there, you joined the army aged 21, uh, and that was due in part to a certain TV programme that you watched in uh, 1974 on the BBC when you were 13 years old. Now tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was uh, an absolutely pivotal moment in my life and my recognition of who I was in terms of my sexuality. Uh, I was an incredibly childish child, um, very nerdy, very sort of uh, insecure. And I was allowed to watch this play. I have no idea why. I I really genuinely don't. Um, And it was very strange because I was sitting watching it and I was in the front room with my mum and my Welsh grandmother, known as Nine, uh, that's the Welsh name for grand, and uh, we were sitting watching this play, and before it even went out, there was a warning from the Director General of the BBC Two, uh, warning that some of the content might be offensive, and I, and I thought, well, why am I being allowed to sit and watch this? But I was. And it was a half-hour play, and it was by a chap called James Robson, and it was called Girl. Only had four characters in it, and one of them was Alison Steadman. It was in one of her earliest roles. It was set in a Women's Royal Army Corps 
recruitment, uh, training barracks. And it, very quickly apparent what the story was. So Alison Stedman's character is a raw recruit who's pregnant, so she's going to have to leave. And she's waiting for transport to take her off the camp, um, and she's under sort of guard almost. And then this corporal comes in that everyone's clearly rather frightened of and who's got a bit of power. And it's the story of what happened between these two characters. And we're watching it, and suddenly they did this flashback scene and these two women are clearly naked in bed together. And it wasn't sort of portrayed as an innocent little companions keeping each other warm in bed. It was making it quite apparent that something was going on with them. And I'm sitting in the front room blushing beetroot mm. because it immediately was, I was like, oh, my God, you know, what the hell's going on? Oh, my goodness. And I was really wowed by it mm. and shocked because I was so naive and very very innocent and childlike but I knew that this was unusual shall we yeah. say and then they come back to the present and at one point they put on a record and it was um Dion Warwick uh this girl's in love with you and they start dancing together, these two women, one in uniform, the other in civvies, and they're holding each other tightly. They're dancing around in a very, you know, romantic way. And they're talking about um, what's going to happen. And the uh, Alison Stedman's character says to this savvy corporal, who's making it quite clear, it, it's made very clear from the word go that she is a lesbian. Uh, she's a career uh, army career person and that she loves the army and it, it suits her fine and she asked her will you miss me when I go and she says yes really and then they kissed one another and everybody thinks that it was um, Beth Jordash in uh, Brookside okay. Anna Friel was the first lesbian kiss on British television well it wasn't um, there were two kisses between Alison Stedman and Myra Francis as these characters very passionate much more passionate than Anna Friel. And mm -hmm. I was sitting there watching it. And I'd never thought about this. You know, the two women might sleep together or kiss one another or dance together. And it was literally instantaneous, this recognition of, oh, oh my God, there's something other than just boy and girl or mm. you know, men and women. There's there's an alternative. And it, it just, it really, really so just shocked me so much. Um, it was profound. And I was amazed that mum and nine that we kept watching it because as I was 13 and it was it was fruity and I've seen mm. it since. And the language was quite fruity at the time. It was quite it was very daring. Yeah. In 1974. Yeah. I deep down think that subconsciously that's why I was drawn to the army because mm. I was thinking, oh, hello. <laughs> you know, I, I briefly some years later went out with a, a lad who was joining the Paras. And I always remember him saying to me, um, Oh, if you ever join the army, you watch out. You know, the WRC is full of bloody you know, queers and dykes and everything. Don't let them make a move on you. Tell them where to go. And I was like, of course, darling. I'm thinking, oh, hello. <laughs> if only. Uh, and, and with this image of this sassy corporal, you know, in her mm. uniform, dancing, you know, and, and kissing this woman and laughing when they're naked in bed together under a sheet. It was profound. Wow. I mean, the, the fact that you can remember so vividly <laughs> Not only in detail, kind of what was happening on the screen, but also how you felt mm. at the age of 13. You know, that really is is very clearly telling us that it really did stay with you. It really did affect you. It really made you feel something. Yeah. Um, what what did your mum and, and 
grandmother say? Did they comment they, on they, it? They didn't say much. It was quite funny. Um, as I say, I was blushing beetroot and just very grateful mm. um, that, you know, this was the early 1970s. So the lights were filament lights and not very strong. So I was right. thinking, thank God it's quite dark in here because I, I was blushing. I could feel my heart pounding. I was just like, oh, my God. God. And um, no, they just tisked and tutted a, a few times. And I remember, you know, mum saying, bloody hell, you know, because of the language. Some yeah. of the language was quite fruity. It was the first time I'd ever heard the word dyke. They used the word dyke, mm-hmm. you know, in the programme. And I, I'd never heard that before. I didn't even know what it meant. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't know. I've uh, Since then, I've got no way of finding out now. They're both gone. But my mum told me years later that Nine had always suspected that I might be gay, which okay. really amazed me. I was like, really you know mm. she thought that and mum said yeah a couple of times she said she thought you might be so I wondered if they were almost like testing me <laughs> oh, maybe. If, they, if they knew what the subject matter was you know well, let's all sit up and watch this and kind of yeah. see how I, I I don't I don't know if I really mean that but it, mm-hmm. you know it does kind of cross my mind why would they have let mm. nerdy little 13 year old me watch something like that that had a warning before it went out I don't know yeah. you said be- because of seeing that that meant that you you know, didn't think that your gender or your sexual identity would ever be a barrier for you to join the army. Would you say that kind of watching watching that made you think, oh, that could be something for me? Or did that come much, much later? No, I'd say that came later. And sort of watching the programme back when it was briefly broadcast uh, for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, um, it was kind of made clear that the openly lesbian character knew that it wasn't allowed but she also knew how to get around the system so looking back on it you can see that she's you know she's knows how to sort of protect herself but it's true to say before I joined up um yes I'd been led to believe that there were quite a lot of lesbians in the army and there were um but also and and this is something I've said many times before because I still have it um when you joined up in those days you had a thing called your notice of engagement Mm -hmm. And because I was joining in the ranks uh, as a private, I, I had signed up for 22 years. So the contract is quite big. It's wow. it's four pages of very, very small um, A4, four A4 pages, a very small font mm-hmm. with all the, you know, the details of your contract. And I still have mine. And there is nothing at all about lesbianism or homosexuality or even pregnancy or anything else, all the various things they used to throw you out for in those days, not mentioned Mm. Not mentioned. So my actual legal contract that I signed when I signed up you know, to serve Queen and Country does not mention lesbianism or homosexuality as a bar to service. And I've been told since that, and I think it was probably because of Robert and I and Rank Outsiders that I think between certain period of time and the lifting of the ban, they then did ask people about right. it and did introduce um, questions. But I don't know whether they actually you know, physically changed the the contracts mm. but no I had no reason to believe it wasn't allowed yeah because uh, that's the thing a lot of people tell you you know or ask you say well why on earth did you join if you knew it wasn't allowed and I said well I actually didn't know it wasn't allowed and I I really had been led to believe it, it could be somewhere that you'd feel quite comfortable so when do you think you knew in any capacity that you were not straight um yeah I knew it at, at grammar school um Definitely. I, I had a, a huge crush on uh, a girl, not in my class, but in my year. Mm-hmm. Huge. And again, it was quite innocent and quite innocuous. I didn't sort of really think in sexual terms exactly, but I just totally reacted to her whenever I saw her. And I could see her, you know, 
way down the corridor as we were changing classrooms or something. And I would see her amongst these dozens or, you know, hundreds of girls walking along the corridors. I would see her. And if I saw her, it was just, oh, oh there's still my beating heart. Mm. Literally, you know, I'd, uh, my heart would be pounding. The hairs on the back of my neck would be standing on end. My palms would be sweaty. If she sat next to me on the bus on the way home, I was just like thrilled mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of the evening. And if she spoke to me, I was just like, oh, my goodness. I just adored her. But it was quite innocent in many ways. I never sort of fantasized before uh, beyond a kiss, really. And even the kiss would be an innocuous kind of kiss. But mm-hmm. so I knew then. Um, but I just completely did my best to suppress it. And I, I, mm. I acted like the vast majority of the rest of my friends in my class and my my best friend who were all mad into boys some of whom were already you know seeing boys and mm-hmm. um i used to get my jackie magazine every week and pretend that i really you know loved my double page spreads of donny osmond or david castile mark mm-hmm. bolan or whomever and um yeah i just tried really hard to convince myself that it was some sort of crush and because mm. it was an all girls grammar school those kind of things were slightly acknowledged that you could have crushes um almost in that kind of victorian notion of you know companions or that you know doing things with girls at school would prepare you for sort of satisfying the husband later right um that kind of image was slightly in my mind but also in my mind was i do remember there were two girls that were reputed to be um together mm-hmm. that were in the year below my year and people talked about them in such a Oh, disparaging, horrible way. And I just also knew, I thought, I don't want to be the kind of person that I don't want people to talk about me in that way. So yeah. I didn't want to be gay or queer. But my, my diaries are full of um, self-analytical teenage angst of, oh, am I? Because I might feel this way. Do, what does that make me? Horrible. Mm. Uh, we used to go to a, a, a disco in Kingsbury Circle, the bandwagon, mm-hmm. and I'd go with my, my best friends, and, uh, you know, the whole idea was, you know, it, it was a successful Saturday night if you'd, um, this is in quotation marks, if you'd got off with some boy. Right. And, you know, that was ridiculous. But that was your way of almost like proving, you know, that there's nothing odd or weird about you because like your friends, you know, you want to find a nice boy and you want a boy to be able to take you out. And when I was at grammar school, I, I do genuinely remember just being vaguely, well, horrified actually listening to some of the the more naughty girls who were being quite sexually adventurous with boys or boyfriends um i would listen to these conversations and just be oh yuck you know like listening to them talking about what they were doing and Mm. what what he was doing and they were doing and i was just thinking oh i can't think of anything worse but having to go oh yeah and pretend you were interested and it was horrible you know because i knew on every level that was not me yeah i was never comfortable with it because I knew it was absolutely how I felt, but it was that societal pressure. I just didn't want that because I knew, and I also I was very fearful about my own family. Mm-hmm. You know, they would hate me for it, and mm-hmm. they would view me as weird or perverse or just something to be ashamed of. Yeah, it, it was very pervasive, and it was all through society, and especially in the sixties and seventies. You've just got to look back at the what was viewed as amusing programs in those days. Mm. You know, they're always portraying all the gay men were limp-wristed, you know, yep. campers are tents. The obvious sort of lesbian or dykey characters were all your sort of Lottie Lenya um, in the Bond movies yeah. and 
just very aggressive and nasty or and then the killing of sister george i mean what a dreadful you know if you thought you were lesbian i mean just horrible looking film to put you off mm. um so yeah you just there's no incentive to follow your heart not then you just had to you had to suppress it because everything was telling you that you couldn't do that that you couldn't yeah be basically there's just this and this overwhelming feeling that even if you couldn't resist how you felt and you did follow your heart that you would be very very vilified and mm. disliked and possibly um it could prejudice your chance you know you couldn't go into certain yeah, careers as it turned out you know so yeah how did it feel being in a relationship with with boys when you knew deep down that that wasn't what you wanted um i felt awful about it because i went out with some really nice guys and they were lovely you know i'm, I'm not um not a sort of lesbian separatist man hater by any means you know i went out with some really really nice guys and they were sweet and kind and you know attractive and funny and all of those things but it was that horrible deep deep awareness that no matter how kind and lovely and wonderful they were and on paper would be you know a, a heterosexual woman's perfect boyfriend or you know partner or whatever that was just never going to be right for me. So I felt horrible because I was deceiving them. And I was deceiving myself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was awful. But, you know, the compulsion to carry on trying. And also I was genuinely trying to convince myself that maybe maybe I was just bisexual yeah. or something. Because I didn't hate them. Yeah, the, the torment mm. from constantly putting on a facade of being somebody else is I think something that you know straight people or people that have never had any sort of mm. queer tendencies or feelings have never had to experience and it's really hard to describe to somebody you know that really and truthfully you aren't yourself until you come out you know I can remember coming out and then suddenly sort of I did exactly the same things as you you know would very much be at school and be talking about you know page three models and mm. girls and things like that i had no interest in that whatsoever i was just lying because i felt like that's what i had to say yeah. and then suddenly being able to say actually this is who i am mm. the weight of it is pretty phenomenal isn't it totally it's 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 um it's, it is a complete liberation you know, literally and metaphorically you are you are yeah the weight literally comes away from you mm -hmm. And the sense of freedom and also that sudden sense of, of real self-worth mm -hmm. because you are being wholly who you are and who you're meant to be. Because that's the other thing, isn't it? You know, people will always talk about it. I can't wait for somebody to one day prove that there's a chromosome or something that makes us um, you know, veer more towards one sex or gender or th than the other. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when people have said, um, I mean, I've had people ask me in the past and said, well, do you think maybe you ended up lesbian because you didn't have many strong male figures in your life when you started out? Which mm -hmm. was true, I didn't. You know, I've never known my genetic father. Uh, my dad adopted me after he married mum, and I was nearly five years old when that happened. Um, so I was brought up with my mum and then this very, very strong maternal grandmother, as I say, nine, um, you know, very strong. And she'd been left by her husband, my maternal grandfather. And so very strong women. And I thought utter rubbish of course it was nothing to do with having strong I, you know i i get it why people talk about nature versus nurture and i do understand why you know particularly perhaps oh i risk sounding really cliched but 
say in the 60s and 70s with the feminists and they'd say that some women would try lesbianism almost because they felt they should because they were feminist and therefore they're meant to reject the patriarchy and reject men mm -hmm. so they might you know kind of try it because they feel that's what they should and again that's an, another word i hate uh, be doing um but for me personally and an awful lot of um, lesbian gay friends and people i've met over many 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 years nearly all of us um feel we were born this way mm -hmm. and that we don't have a choice and I, one thing I've always said is the only choice you have is whether or not you accept it in yourself and yeah. that's like you say when you finally get to the point of thinking well look whether I wanted this or not whether society hates me or not whether there are countries in the world that would still kill me for being who I am what choice do I have I either suppress who I am the essence of me to fit in with a world that doesn't like me for irrational reasons mm -hmm. Or I go, yeah, this is who I am. No, I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. And I wish that that was the case. I think, you know, it's getting better. Mm. I think we can very easily go backwards. But there definitely feels like there has been a shift with the younger generations at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it still feels the fact that people still have to come out yes. is still a problem, I think. Um, tell me about your experiences during training. So when, when you were training, you, you weren't out. No. Um, and you had to learn not only nursing, mm -hmm. but also in the background of the, of the military. So w what was that like? You, you kind of doing those two things simultaneously. Oh, it's wonderful. I loved it. I, I loved the army. When you, so when you join up, um, we were split into two squads and before you start your nurse training, you do all the military training. So that's all the marching and the drill and the PE and the running and all the rest of it before you even do anything nursing. And those friends, I'm still, you know, massively great friends with uh, loads of them 40 mm. years later. Wow. You know, there is a true friendship rooted in this joint experience mm -hmm. that we came into very naively. I mean, I was quite old as, as a 21-year-old. Most of them were 18. Wow. First, you know, first proper career move after school or college. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's the first time you're away from home. And, of course, because it was 40 years ago, you become each other's family because there was no mobile phones, there was no texting, no social media, no emails. If you wanted to contact your family, you had to go to a phone box and stick the 10 P's in every time the pips went. Mm -hmm. And you were queuing up for the one phone box on the wall of the billets. Yeah. So we became each other's family, which is so corny and cliche. To anyone who's never been in the military, they hear the military, we talk about oh, the camaraderie. And you, you know, you can see people glazing over at times thinking, oh, here they go again. Bloody military, camaraderie. Oh, you know. But it's true. It is true. It's very deep and it's very profound. And then the nurse training, well, that was marvellous because, and that's one thing I think is really different for um, lesbians in the military. At the time, if you were joining the military as a woman, you only had two basic options. So you had the Women's Royal Army Corps which no longer really exists because now if you join as a woman, especially now because you can join any trade, you can be a, a, a you know um, in the artillery or a fighter pilot if you have the skills and you know the desire to do so. Mm -hmm. As of course, back then it was very limited. So you either joined the Women's Royal Army Corps and then were attached to a corps or regiment in whatever role you were doing, whether it be your driver, PTI, um, different things they would do, like uh, maybe clerk, admin roles, whatever, mm -hmm. or you joined 
the QAs, which is what I joined, which is Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Corps. And so what was good about that was you got running tandem to the hierarchy of the, the army. And so the military structure that I'm joining at the lowest rank, which is a private um, and yes, it's of course, it's very structured, but I'm also being trained for three years in exactly the same way as a nurse would in the NHS, covering all the same specialisms, you know, medicine, surgery, paediatrics, maternity, geriatrics, psychiatry, everything. And being taught to think for myself. Yes, I have to be part of a team and I have to be able to work in a, say, a tented military hospital in a conflict zone. But equally, I need to be able to know when patients come in, how to triage them. So I'm not being taught to be entirely just following orders in a very sort of uh, automatic response way. You're mm-hmm. also being taught to be independent and to, to you know, quick thinking. So that's quite interesting because it's not quite the same as a lot of the things, especially that the men went through in certain yeah. regiments and corps that were so strict and structured mm-hmm. and you're just basically in follow the rules and don't question it we're, we you know we had that strange dichotomy of yes we're in this hierarchical structure but we are being encouraged to question and learn and understand as we're going but what was very difficult for me was very very quickly after joining up um i absolutely fell for one of my fellow student nurses and it was very strange because at that point obviously i'd never had any same-sex involvements, anything. Nothing had ever happened with anybody. I knew by the time we left Aldershot and the military drill PE side of things and we went to Woolwich, Queen Elizabeth Military Hospital in Woolwich for our six weeks introduction to nursing. So there we were going to learn how to you know, make a bed with hospital corners and try to read mercury-filled thermometers and you know, do blood pressures and etc. And by the time I got there, I just knew something had gone on with her and a woman at the training centre. And I don't know how I knew. It was weird. But mm. I did. I just picked up on it. I suppose people nowadays will call it gaydar. But right. you know the way that I let her know that I knew was crazy. And that was the night that I was first kissed by another woman. And again, that was, oh my goodness, you know, so profound Mm. so profound and it really was that was horrifically weird because it was incredibly exciting incredibly erotic and an absolute um hallelujah yeah oh my god (laughs) the angels were singing it was it was just like it was beautiful it was everything i'd expected it to be and more and i was just so it was like coming home and Mm. i was just like oh oh my God, you know, my world didn't implode. The, the God's hand didn't come down and throw me out for being a filthy perv. You yeah. know, and it was just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And then equally knowing at the very instant that I'm filled with revelatory light and joy that I can't tell anyone. Yeah. Well, it's sort of something you want to shout from the rooftops, you know, totally. anytime a first kiss, a first crush, boyfriend, girlfriend, holding hands, all of those sorts of things. It's the fact that you have to keep it in the shadows mm. that is hard. How did you, you know, that kiss happened and it was explosive and exciting. Mm-hmm. And then what, what happened afterwards? Well, it was it was very, very difficult because it happened in Woolwich and in Woolwich we had to share uh, four man rooms. So we could never be alone. Right. Uh, so that was very difficult. And um, we managed to be alone once, one time when we went to my mum and dad's house, actually. And um, 
we managed to be alone and we managed to take things further mm-hmm. physically. And again, before it happened, I, I wanted it and was ready, but was all, I was still also terrified. Yeah. I thought, what if this is awful or I don't like it or it feels weird or it's horrid? And it didn't. It felt great and it felt natural and it was very exciting. And, you know, I was just like, again, just blown away. I was besotted. I was absolutely besotted. I convinced myself I was in love with her. Looking back, I know I wasn't in love with her as such. But it was because it was the first involvement. And it was a validation of all those fantasies from 1974 and from school and, Mm. you know, made it all very real. So um, that was very, very difficult. And then we were posted apart because our group was split into two groups and she was in the half that stayed in the UK and I was in the half that was chosen to go to Germany. Mm-hmm. And I was so besotted and so convinced I was in love. I was almost at the point of sort of saying, Look, I'll ask someone to swap because Germany was then viewed very much as a plum posting. Even though it was Cold War, it was, oh, Germany, how exciting. Uh-huh. And um, and she, quite rightly really, kept saying, no, don't. You know, it'll be really weird and obvious and people will know and you, know, you can't sort of thing. And also I think because deep down... Um, you know, she was a bit of a minx and, you know, she, as I say, she'd had a fling with somebody in training and then with me and then at the same time she was seeing this really hunky uh, bloke. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, she was, she was great. I mean, she was enjoying life and having fun, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I was much more than a bit of, you know, I think she liked me, but that was kind of it. Whereas I was like, oh. Yeah, for you, know, for you oh, she was, was the the pinnacle of yeah. how you were feeling. Yeah, it was a big deal. So yeah, it was that was very difficult. But you know, she was quite right, and so I didn't ask to swap or anything. Mm-hmm. I, off I went to Germany for eighteen months, uh, you know, carrying on with my training, and that was when I I started going out with men again because I was just trying really hard to not forget her. I would mm-hmm. never, of course, I couldn't forget her. Yeah. But I knew by then, hundred percent knew by then, it's not allowed. Yep. It is not allowed. You know, do not ever let anyone think. That that's who you are or what you are. So what was it that happened that made you then go, I cannot do that again? Well, it was just, I mean, funny enough, it was her in some ways because she was, you know, I think she was much more savvy than me. I mean, she was a bit younger than me, but she was had a very mature head on her shoulders. She was quite worldly wise, shall we say. And uh, she just knew, you know, and she said, Elaine, you have got to be so careful. You've got to be so careful. And I think she knew that I was very besotted and mm-hmm. she was very protective of me in her own way. Yeah. Um, so I think she was just trying to get me to understand how, you know, I had to be careful. Um, and if I was going to tell anybody, I had to be very careful as to who I might tell. And mm. I did. I told my two best friends uh, when I went out there. It was like, We were a very small group. And I became really, really close to two um, other girls in the group, um, uh, both straight, you know. Um, and I told them very early on um, how I felt and how confused I was. And they were just fantastic and all equally very protective very much just be careful, be careful, be careful. Mm. Um, and, but then I started going out with this guy and one of my close friends was going out with a, another guy in his, um, he was in the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards. And, uh, you know, we started dating and I get lovely, lovely guy, you know. And it was, so then it's very easy to almost convince yourself, oh, oh I, it, it was just a phase or it was just the excitement or the, you know, the fact it was unusual or whatever else and you know this is a really nice guy and he's falling in love with me and he wants to marry me and you know I know my mum particularly um, would be delighted if I got married to this nice young man and you know, gave her grandchildren and so I almost kind of tried to convince myself that I loved him back and that it could work and I knew deep down it it, it would not have made me happy mm. but I, I 
probably could have faked it to the degree of actually ending up a mother yeah. and you know married and and you know, deep down knowing that absolutely did not float my boat but just that desire to fit in with society yeah. and um, to not uh, disappoint people like my family yeah i was just going to say the pressures of going i have to make other people happy i have to put yeah. their happiness before i think of what 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 i want yeah and I, I that is a really common recurring theme i think in a lot of queer people that you spend a lot of time convincing yourself but also going but i have to do this because what will my parents say how did it feel when you told your two best friends it felt like a, it was a, a huge relief it was also a huge relief that they weren't like Ugh, or mm. oh my god how disgusting it was just oh elaine be careful they were very protective because they were caring and compassionate and lovely lovely people so yeah it felt it felt great it felt like an absolute release and relief um but but there was always that you know the in the background that but just elaine you know this is so dangerous for you and you could end up in big trouble when you'd been in germany in hanover for a period of time something or things started to happen didn't they that sort of started to plant the seed that then you know, led to you eventually having this investigation start. Can you tell me sort of, in your own words, from the beginning, mm -hmm. what what was it that started off that chain of events? Yeah, sure. Um, so Hanover came later. Basically, I, I went from Rintown in Germany back to England, then finished my nurse training, then qualified, then got my commission, mm -hmm. not long after I qualified, and then got posted back to Hanover. And what happened was, that, well... It's difficult because when in those days where there were a lot of military hospitals all around the world, there are none left now, but they were all around the world, but they're all quite small. And because you got posted, on average, you get posted somewhere else every two years. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of overlaps and you'll be working and, and stationed with people that you've met before. They might not be friends, but you maybe know one another. And of course, there was an incredible gossipy grapevine throughout and when I'd come back to the UK, when I was still a student nurse and up to the time of qualifying, again, still going out with guys, but people used to talk. And because I had confided, um, something had happened in Rintown, someone got talking to me and almost, it was almost like she was hinting that she might have feelings, not for me, but for women. Right. And it was a bit strange. And I trusted her and opened up as to how I had felt. And then the next thing I knew, she was dissing me and saying, don't get stuck in a lift with her. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. That was nice of you. You know, mm. get my trust, make it sound like you feel the same way and then start slagging me off mm. to everybody. So um, there was some gossip and there was some supposition about me that I might be gay or at least bisexual or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, again, I uh, then I started doing the usual thing of trying to squash it. So I would go to the uh, naffy discos or the rugby discos and you know, dance with guys or, you know, whatever, uh, dated a few men again, trying to keep the sort of straight credentials um, intact to try and you know, keep the gossip away. Well, that must have been exhausting. It, yeah, it was. It was horrible. It's just so ridiculous. Looking back, you just think, for God's sake, what a waste of time. Because um, I was a blooming good nurse. You know, surely that's mm. really should be all that counts, yeah. not what I want to do in the privacy of my own off-duty time. But, you know, that was how it was. So... Yeah, it was it was very, very difficult. And then when I got my commission, I mean, and that was huge. I was so proud. 
And, uh, you know, mum and dad came and my um, nine and my auntie came to my passing out parade and I was just so thrilled and so chuffed. Having started out in life in a very ordinary way, mm-hmm. you know, born illegitimately when it counted to be yeah. illegitimate was not a good thing in 1960. Um, on a council estate, working class kind of background, uh, suddenly I'm an officer in the British Army, you know, the trained nurse in one of the best nursing institutions of the world, I, in, I believe. And um, so, yeah, it was all fantastic. Everything was going brilliantly. And then uh, on two separate occasions, off duty, in private, mutually consensual, a couple of incidents happened between me and two fellow QA officers. Mm -hmm. I slept with somebody, Mm -hmm. but it was entirely at her invitation. And as I say, mutually consensual, both off duty, behind closed doors, no one other than us two had known about it. Mm -hmm. And that was that. And then the other one... Um, and I used this very old-fashioned term before, but it's, it kind of fits the image, really, was what I would describe as a necking session with somebody. <laughs> this particular woman, ostensibly straight, and my very best friend, Gail, who is straight, um, who is just lovely, my best officer friend, we were talking in the mess, and it had come to Gail and this other woman's attention, because they worked in the same ward, Right. that this... Um, equivalent to a healthcare assistant, they were called ward stewardesses in those days, lovely old-fashioned term, had been saying that I, I was gay or queer or, you know, whatever. And this straight officer was really, you know, she was just going um, mad, you know, about how dare she and, you know, what does she know about you and this, that and the other. And I was thinking, oh, God, you know, so I was kind of playing it down, playing it down. And then Gail was saying, it's nobody's business. Why does anyone care? We were all having this discussion. We were all agreeing. And uh, then we started talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And they were talking then about, you know, don't dream it, be it. Who cares? You know, love who you want to love. You know, Mm -hmm. Tim Curry sleeps with anyone, everyone, because he wants to. That's, you know, he enjoys it. So why is that a problem? And uh, and any of this necking session happened on the background of I took a grolsch to her room. We literally, it was not instigated by one or t'other. It just happened. happened. It really did. Anyway, so those things had happened and time had moved on and that was it as far as I was aware. But apparently how it had kicked off was very simple. The the one that I'd had the sort of snog necking session with Mm -hmm. worked in the same ward, as I say, with my best friend Gail. And there was another woman in the same ward who was having huge, huge problems at the time because she'd um, she'd been sexually abused by her own late father. So she was drinking really heavily because it was coming up to the anniversary of his death. She was having nightmares about him coming out of the grave you know, to rape her, and she was really freaking out. Ironically, we're in the nursing corps, one of the best nursing you know institutions in the world at the time, and the care of we nurses was appalling mental health issues or anything like that were very much looked down upon they were not very well cared for i don't believe that's Mm -hmm. you know i have to be careful how i say that but that's in my belief and it was really difficult to go off sick or to report sick because you know the the way that you would be dealt with could be quite difficult and it, it could affect your you know possibly your career trajectory if it was seen as a a black mark or a negative thing if you needed help Uh so basically they were trying really hard to protect this woman by sleeping in her room at night when she was drunk and getting her up and getting her to work in the morning so she wouldn't go off sick right they were working on a ward where the woman in charge the sister in charge was a lesbian 
Everyone knew she was a lesbian and nobody cared. Nobody cared because she was very, very good at her job and she was very nice and, you know, they all liked her. She was fabulous. But she would constantly try to pretend to be straight and she would say things like, I've, I've said this before, um, but, you know, we'd all be sitting in the, the officer's mess having had lunch or whatever and some poor, you know, young one pip wonder subaltern from Sandhurst who's just qualified would sort of wander in looking like a lost sheep and she would say in a real sort of stage aside sotto voce thing you know oh, wash that boy and send him to my room and we'd all be thinking why you don't need a boy in your room we know you like women <laughs> and you'd be like and we'd all have to go ha 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 because mm-hmm. she was a major and we're all junior officers and you'd uh-huh. be like oh for god's sake you know we all know you don't need to do this we don't care we don't mind it's not a problem but she felt forced to act very straight yeah so this particular day uh the the woman that i'd had the snogging session with uh who was looking after the friend they were talking with the boss the closeted lesbian and the closeted lesbian said do you think all the dreadful experiences she's been through means she might have lesbian tendencies and the person that i'd had the session with said Oh, no, if anyone in the mess has lesbian tendencies, then it's Elaine. Right. That was it. That was the, the touchstone that, that set the, the wheels in motion for my career to be over. Mm. It was that simple because this closeted lesbian decided to take it upon herself to act terribly concerned and affronted and act as if she were a straight person. And, you know, why do you say that? You can't say that. That's a terrible accusation to make, you know. Um, and basically was like a terrier with a rag and wouldn't let go. Well, of course, she can't turn and say, well, we'd had a skin full of Grolsch and we were playing uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and we had a bit of a snog. And I panicked, and so I sent her away because I wasn't sure. And that's that. She's not going to do that because if she does that, she's then painting herself with the same sapphic brush. And there is, in those days, there is no excuse, there is no exception and, you know, a lot of people don't understand this, that the actual just being gay or bi uh, was absolutely viewed in itself as being a crime. Yeah. You are a criminal, even if you never acted on it, even if you were deliberately, completely celibate, or you'd even married someone of the opposite sex to kind of prove yourself as being straight. If anything came to any light that would prove that you had ever done anything or thought anything that might make you gay or bisexual, that's enough to call in the military police and start investigating. And so it it leapt from what it had been Mm. to, oh, my God, you know, she can't turn around and say how she knew because what we'd done was mutually consensual and, you know, it was what it was. So she made out that I'd made a pass at her that she hadn't wanted and I'd been sent away. And I never understood for many years, and I still don't entirely understand how the original person that I had slept with many weeks before... Mm came to let let it be known that she'd been sort of in some way involved and then the same thing happened she said i'd i'd made a move at her i'd lunged at her and touched her on her breast you know through a clothes that we're both dressed but i'd made a move when i was upset and drunk about something and that she pushed me away and sent me away and uh, by the time the military police were involved i knew my career was over mm. and i'd been told by military legal officer great advice thank you um your career is over. You are now trying to defend yourself from the uh, the indefensible because by this point, they were, I was never charged. 
but the allegations were indecent assault against a female age 16 and over. So I was terrified I'd be struck off the nursing register because obviously if I was found guilty of indecent assault Mm -hmm. as a nurse looking after people, I thought, oh my God, I could be struck off. So I was fighting for my life, literally, and my my career and my worth. And um, so when they told me, look, you know, your career's over because we've, we've got enough evidence from your letters and your diaries that you've had these thoughts or that you've even acted on them. So uh, you are going to lose your job. So then I was like, well, I am not going to lose my job for an indecent assault that I never, ever committed. Mm. Everything that happened between us was consensual. And because the woman had actually invited me to stay the night and we'd slept together, I was able to provide uh, a a very different um, version of events, which when they investigated further... My original accuser actually broke down completely and admitted that she'd lied. And that then cost her her career because wow. they said she's not fit to hold a Queen's Commission because she, as an officer, it's not officerly behaviour to lie to save your own skin and to drop another officer in it. So she lost everything for the sake of one not especially good night of sex, mutually yeah. consensual sex behind closed doors. And yeah, we were stupid to do that in the officer's mess, but nobody had known about it. Mm-hmm. It was on the 21st of August, 1987, that these accusations were brought to your attention. Uh, An investigation was started. Yep. And a warrant officer class two, and was it your matron? Yep. And one of the first things that that happened was, as you you sort of alluded to, your room was was looked through. you describe it in, in your book as being incredibly clinical. You know, latex gloves were put mm. on and yep. your room was searched from top to bottom. What on earth was going through your mind when that was happening? Uh, again, a very weird mix of emotions. And I liken it, even at the time, and this is genuinely, it's not with the wisdom of hindsight, I do remember very distinctly at the time, it felt quite out of body. It felt almost like I was looking down upon the scene from above and going, oh, my God, this is nuts. And there was this strange mix again. There was this mix of fear, absolute terror, because I just didn't know where this was going to go and, you know, exactly how it would end. But there was also, I, I was angry, completely angry. But I was also vaguely amused because there were just things that were in my mind that I just kept thinking about while I was sitting there. So I'm sitting there outwardly immensely calm and I know that I, I knew at the time because I was I was sitting in my room so basically what happened was uh, yeah matron had called me up and there was this warrant officer and a sergeant I think and uh, you know these accusations being made what have you got to say and I was like well I'm telling you it's a load of lies I've never done anything to anybody against their will and I never would uh, well in that case we've got to investigate and I'm thinking oh well it's Friday afternoon you know, they'll come back and I'd been on a split shift that day. Um, so um, I'd gone back to my room in the afternoon during my break and I'd put together in two carrier bags all this information that I thought might paint me with a sapphic brush. Anything, you know, the, the novel The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. Oh, my God. Uh, mm-hmm. Anything, you know, mm. letters, diaries, anything at all that I was concerned might give that image. And I put them all in these two bags and I thought, where am I going to put them? Where am I going to hide them? I need to hide them because I know Matron had said we're going to investigate. And um, 
I just didn't have any options. I just didn't. I, if I'd have gone out and gone up to the loft above the billets, uh, not the billets, sorry, the officer's mess, it would have been obvious and people would have seen me. And I thought, oh, that won't work. And then I thought, I can't burn them because I'm in this little room, so I can't mm. burn them safely anywhere. And I thought, and then there were no shredders or anything. And I thought, well, can I hide them? So No. So I thought, oh, it'll be all right. It's Friday. They, they won't come back. It'll be all right, you know. Um, and I went back to work uh, for five o'clock or whatever it was. And at 5.15, the, the phone goes. And it's Matron again. It's the first time I'd just seen Matron. And then she, I come back to my office immediately. And I was like, oh, God. And, of course, I go into the office. And that's when this warrant officer and the sergeant were there from the Royal Military Police. And my heart just fell. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, even as it was happening, I could just see in my mind's eye these two bags on my bed. Like evidence that you've what accidentally a pervert. Put she's a lesbian. Ooh, and you've put them all together by accident in one place. Hey, take the evidence away that I'm a filthy scumbag pervert who deserves everything she gets. You know, mm. and I was just even at the time it was happening, I was just like I could sort of see it in my mind's eye, and even then it was kind of funny in a <laughs> terrifying way, and I was just like, oh my god, and it it was funny because you know. He said, oh, what What are you saying? Uh, you know, and I said, well, I'm denying it because it's not true. You know, absolute rubbish. I've not made any moves on anyone in my life. I just wouldn't. And that's absolutely true. So he then says, uh, right, well, in that case, uh, we'll, we need to investigate further. I'm not going to um, start questioning you today. And I'm like, Phew, sigh of relief. But I would like to search your room. And I was like, oh, no. Mm. And it literally, I honestly, I used to be really fast runner. I was the fastest runner of the a basic fitness test and at the time I was the unit sports officer I mean you wouldn't think to look at me now but it was a long time ago and uh I'm it would even cross my mind and I, I sort of said to him my brain was like going 19 to the dozen and I'm yeah, going I, I said to him um oh uh I, I'm afraid my my handbag is in the office which it was which was obviously where my room keys were because we all had to have this rather lovely girly handbag as part of our uniform so, and I had in my mind this idea, I would run back to the office, sprint back to my room in the mess, and then throw everything out the window into the bushes in the garden below, you know, two floors down. Oh, that's all right, we'll come with you. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. So, you know, we go into the office, everyone sees me go into the office with two red caps and matron, matron looking at her face like thunder, like she's got a very bad smell under her nose. And everyone's like thinking, what is going on? And I had to leave the ward with no sister in charge. And off I went. And yeah, they took three hours Mm -hmm. to take apart a single tiny room Mm -hmm. in the officer's mess because they literally, uh, they went through every photograph. I had a huge tin with thousands. I've always taken loads and loads of photographs. Uh, All of my letters, um, apart from all the ones in the bags. And they didn't go to the bags first. And uh, you asked, how did I feel? I, so I'm sitting there, so I'm still in my nurse's uniform, very neat and tidy, polished shoes, spick and span, you know, creases you could cut your fingers on. And I'm sitting there, ankles crossed, you know, very polite and neat and everything, just sitting there. And I, I was this very strange mix inside of, mm. oh my God, this is mental, yeah. to, you know, what the fuck, this is nuts to, oh my God, I'm terrified, and back again, and round and round and round. But the whole time, those bags were sitting on the bed, and I it did cross my mind. I thought, I could just say to them, look, forget searching everything else, just take those bags. But there was part of me, even then, kind of wanted to see what were they doing, and what were they looking for? Mm-hmm. And I so say, when they, they got these this box of latex gloves out, and they start putting latex gloves on, and I thought, oh my God, really? Mm-hmm. And then they're pulling Every LP out of every cover, they went through, literally through my linen uh, uh, 
bin. So they literally pulled out all my dirty clothes and underwear. They went through all the pockets of all my trousers and jackets and everything. They, they, they literally, three hours, one small room. What an invasion of privacy. Oh, it was unbelievable, you know. And then, and then the, he finally sort of came across, upon the bags and started looking through. And that's when he started, you know, he'd start reading things. And he'd be, sta- it was painful. I mean, it, it, it yeah. was so excruciatingly long and awful. But he, he started looking through and every now and then you'd hear him sort of go, hmm, like this. And I thought, oh, Jesus, what's he reading, you know. And yeah, he took a lot of stuff away. It was put into plastic bags. It was given tag numbers. It was you know, noted as exhibits and taken away. And then I was told, um, we will see you. We'll be back on Monday to start um, questioning you. Mm-hmm. And the three of them walked out. Matron the entire time just looked so pained and disgusted. And she was absolutely buying into the guilty until proven innocent motive, not the right way around. Okay. And uh, they just walked out and left me. And that was it. And then I just burst into tears, having mm. held it together for three hours and you know been very defiant and neat and tidy. And I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of making you think I'm terrified of you, even though I was. Mm. But the minute they walked out, that's when I just broke down and I was left on my own. I did understand the need to investigate it. I, d- I didn't have a problem with that. But it was as it moved on, as soon as it became apparent that they weren't going to change from allegations into accusations or, well, they were, always, I suppose, they were always accusations. But sorry, they weren't going to ch- uh, be changed into charges. Right. When that became apparent, and when it was also apparent they were looking for other people who were not remotely involved, that's when it shifted for me. And I actually thought, you know what, this is just. That's when I knew it. To me, it was totally obscene and immoral because they were then absolutely, uh, you know, and people use the term witch hunt very nonchalantly about numerous things, um, but it absolutely was. It, it turned very quickly when he realised it was unlikely that I was going to ever be um, convicted or proven to have done these things mm-hmm. um, and that, that they didn't pursue it and make it into a formal charge, that he was then, it was quite clear, he was looking for other scalps. And that, to me, that just shifted my own fear, became more and more of a focal anger at how unjust and ridiculous and obscene it was that they were wasting taxpayers time and valuable money investigating what and then actually getting rid of people that I knew who were nothing to do with my case and the guilt I felt that my letters and diaries had led to them being investigated I I carried that with me for years because I knew you know I had inadvertently by keeping letters they'd sent me cost them their careers because they would then you know they're phoning from um, Hanover to Munster, to Aldershot, to Hong Kong, and then getting the military police going out and visiting people who weren't even involved, and then investigating them, and then they take apart their room, and find, find stuff, more people, and then yeah. they find more. But it's like a ripple in a fetid pond, and off they go to find someone else. You know, people that I knew, a lovely nurse that I'd worked with, um, who'd worked for eighteen years, who was one of the best nurses you could ever meet. Lovely, lovely woman. She was in Hong Kong because we'd written letters to one another. She was investigated and she was thrown out. And then because they took apart her room in the sergeant's mess in Hong Kong and took her letters and diaries and cards from a a previous partner of hers who had served for 21 years, who had the highest level of um, admin security clearance, was sacked. So less than about a year before she would have got her full entitlement of pension of 22 years of loyal service. 
because of letters and diaries. And I carried the guilt I felt. And yet both of those wonderful, wonderful women actually, she actually phoned me up in the mess to say, how was I doing when she was about to lose her 21 year career because of letters, a trail of letters that led back to me. And these were the compassionate, lovely people. They're just sacking because of their sexual orientation. Mm. Who were doing all the right things and it was just because of who you were attracted to that completely cut all of that short and really and truthfully we can sit here now and and, you know reflect back and say that because people like you were were chucked out that was at the detriment of of the army of of our country completely It, it was there was just no sense to it at all the investigation in, into you after that carried on and continued and, and you say in your book that even though you were heartbroken at losing the career that you loved so much that you just reached a point where you just thought, I just want this to be over now and finished and done with. It's, it's too much and just you needed that discharge to happen so that you yeah. could just kind of not draw a line under it but could be out of that situation. Yeah. When that eventually did happen and you were discharged, what happened then? Well, um, eventually I did move home and that was scary for a while because, um, again, like I say, it was in the era before mobiles and everything else. And I thought, I can't just ring mum and dad up. This is not going to work. It's so long-winded and complex. I can't just ring them up and explain it's over, I'm coming home, when they thought I had a career for life and when they'd been so proud of me. So I wrote them a very long letter setting the scene, the background, and I didn't hear anything for ages because my grandmother had died not long since and it w- it was, we were going through a very difficult time uh, as a family with other stuff and um, I didn't hear anything for ages and I thought, oh God, they, they've abandoned me, they, they don't want to know. But then I did eventually get a letter from mum which was lovely and was just saying, look my darling, your bedroom is here for you, we are here for you, we love you, uh, we can just tell people you didn't like it as an officer, you preferred it in the ranks, whatever, come back. I was also thinking, okay, I've been thrown out for being a lesbian. Time to find out for sure. And uh, I started going out on the scene in London and I went for the first time ever to um, the lesbian discussion group at Gaze the Word. It was coming out one week in time out and I thought, well, I'm kind of coming out uh, unwillingly. I was kind of shoved out, but I think, well, Mm. why don't I go and find out? And it was amazing. And I went along. And I'd, uh, before I'd even joined the army, I lived just around the corner from it when I worked in the hotels and um, I'd always shuffled past it, kind of looking at it, thinking, I want to look at that, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, so to go in there, was just wonderful. And I went to the discussion group and told a few people a, a, a real shortened version of this story. And everyone was like, what? And most people didn't even know there was a ban mm-hmm. in the military. It was not really known about. And everyone was just staggered. And so, yeah, I started going out on the scene and having the time of my life you know, mm. going into a room like that and meeting this incredible array of diverse wonderful confident beautiful women butch and femme young and old black and white oh uh, you know tory socialist liberal everything this wonderful wonderful mix of gorgeous women who were happy to be themselves was just like oh heaven i'm in heaven it was just wonderful And so, yeah, I was out on the scene. And, of course, then we had the London Lesbian and Gay Centre. We had the women's discos. We had the tea dances. 
Um, I briefly joined Kenrick, you know, go and see all the latest Pedro Almodovar films. And, you know, just it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And being back in London, you know, because I lived in Harrow, I was born in Harrow. So very easy to get into town. I was having the time of my life. It was absolutely superb. It was quite funny because what pushed me into doing that was very amusing. Um, when I was in Hanover, uh, the other thing they made you do, because it was still seen then as a sort of mental illness, you had to go and see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And so I went and saw this uh, psychiatrist, this major, who was lovely and off the record basically was saying, it's a nonsense and I'm so sorry, this is terrible, what a tragedy, what a waste, off the record. But it is what it is, they are saying this, but what I can do for you, as you have expressed, that you have some confusion about your sexuality because you have been in relationships with men that you have liked and you know, you've, you, you know, you're not expressing that you're entirely convinced you are wholly gay because outwardly I wasn't. I was still kind of mm-hmm. acting a little bit as if I was still slightly muddled. And he wrote a really, really lovely letter. And he said, look, if you wanted to have any what they called then psychosexual counselling, you could take this letter to your GP and it may help you to to get something. Very lovely, actually, really nice man. So I had this letter, went to my GP and thought, yeah, yeah let's go and see someone. And uh, anyway, they referred me and I, I look back now and I do laugh because I think, oh, my God, you know, they, it was, this was wholly inappropriate. So I was referred to this, um, I think it's called the, the Carol Thomas Sexual Health Clinic at the time in Wealdstone. And off I went for my appointment with this woman counsellor. And I came in and, you know, she wasn't particularly friendly or, you know, anything. And we were chatting and then she said, so so why are you here? You know, what is it exactly you want to talk about? And I said, well, I presume you've seen the letter. Um, and I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to identify and understand exactly who I am and what I am and what, what I want from life. And she, she turned around and she said to me, oh, I think you've already made your mind up. And I, I, was, I sat there, yeah, I know. And I sat there and I went, I'm sorry. And she said, well... Look at the way you're dressed. And I was like, okay. And I looked at the way I was dressed. And I've made a joke about this since. I have talked about this to people. And I said, I could have kind of understood it being you know, the late 80s, early 90s, had I been in um, 18 hole DMs with a flat top crew cut, dungarees, and a Czech lumberjack shirt. Uh, you know, that she's saying, oh, you've made your mind up. But I was looking, I thought I had a pair of perfectly nice, slightly flat, admittedly, yes. But they're very nice maroon leather sort of flat shoes, like loafer deck shoes. Mm-hmm. Nice matching pair of sort of burgundy type trousers, a blouse, not a shirt, a blouse, and a nice jacket. And yes, my hair was a bit short, but not super duper short. Mm-hmm. And yes, my nails were short and I wasn't wearing any makeup. I mean, were those the terrible clues that I'd made up my mind? And I just looked at this woman and I just thought, wow. You judgmental, biased old bat. Mm. And it was quite funny. And at the end of the session, you know, oh, do you want to make another appointment next week? And I thought, no, no. I bloody don't. I'm off to gaze the wood. If you've decided <laughs> I'm a big, big dyke, I'm out of here, pal. <laughs> and it was actually in a strangest of ways, although I, I was, again, I often feel this mix of strange emotions that are quite contradictory. So I was angry, but I was also amused. Yeah. And bemused. I was just like, what the hell just happened there? I cannot believe someone's, you know, absolutely projected their own bigotry mm. and thoughts about how you dress. And I thought, yeah, okay, I came dressed like this today. But I, in those days, I used to sometimes wear frocks. In those days, I used to wear stiletto heels nearly all the time, you know. Um, so it, I could have come dressed a different way and she would have interpreted me according to how I was dressed. And I just thought, wow. In early 1991, mm-hmm. in the 
pink paper, you were drawn to an article written by uh, Robert Ely, who, yep. we've, who I've mentioned already, uh, who we interviewed in, in episode mm. one. Yep. And Robert was looking for anyone who had had a similar experience of being kicked out of the army due to their sexual orientation. You met with Robert and discussed what had happened to you. And then both of you ended up appearing on a BBC Two show called Heart of the Matter, presented by Joan Bakewell, yeah. where you ended up discussing the military ban and your sexuality. That was a, you know, a really significant high-profile thing to be doing. Were you worried about what people might say or what the reaction to that programme might be? Um, I worried about you know mum and dad. And mm. although I'd in principle agreed to do it, because um, I wasn't worried about it at all, and the reason I've, I was never worried about it in those terms, for me personally was because I knew I'd done nothing wrong, mm-hmm. nothing. And I also knew that what had happened to me and after I'd first spoken to Robert, which was the first person, obviously he was the first person I'd ever spoken to who'd been through anything similar. And I mean, my God, 20 years from a boy soldier, geez. I mean, I, I, I was just so horrified at his story, which mm-hmm. was just awful. And... Um, so I knew that we had done nothing wrong and patently this ban was utterly, utterly disgusting and contemptible and people needed to know about it and we needed, if possible, to try to get it lifted because of what it was doing and how ridiculous it was. So in that respect, I, I was up for it straight away, you know, sign me up, sign me up. But I was living with mum and dad, you know, back in the family home. And so I was not going to do it if they were not happy for me to do it so I told them about it explained what it was and God love them you know in fairness it was amazing because it was going out on BBC one you know nine o'clock and there was a big chance that friends or family or work colleagues might have seen it and uh, I know my mum was never entirely comfortable Mm -hmm. with my being lesbian I know that but she utterly supported me and rank outsiders and our aims and she was our biggest sort of fan and she was always the one when I was doing things like trying to fundraise like walking the Pennine way she was the one who was taking um, sponsor sheets around everybody where she worked at the college and getting everyone to sign up to sponsor myself and my mate Steve to raise money for the the group which was obviously entirely um, funded by ourselves Uh, so yeah so so supportive which was absolutely brilliant so once I knew that they were okay with it then uh, yeah I had no anxiety whatsoever because I knew this story needed to be out there and people needed to know about it because it was becoming so apparent to Robert and I that there were a lot of people had been negatively impacted by the irrational bigoted ridiculous mindset for so long and it needed to be sorted out. You and Robert then went on to form Rank Outsiders the support group for those people who you know faced the same fate that you had the things that the group went on to do were pretty remarkable what you know the the ban eventually was lifted and that was in no um small small part part, thank (laughs) you to to what you and the group were doing what really stands out to you during that period it was a mix of emotions uh i don't think at that point i was thinking about generations to come because i think at that the point that we started we just couldn't imagine the ban ever being lifted because it had been you know it had been in for such a long time mm-hmm. at least officially since the original i think 1955 army act but unofficially way before that you know there was always been persecution um, of, of homosexuals in the military right across the board you know all three services so um but the initial thought was we were very um 
what we wanted to try to do, I and mean, it was difficult, again, still the pre-social media era, very difficult to kind of even get people to know about our existence and to publicise ourselves. But what we wanted was two things. We wanted the, the wider world to know about the ban, that it even existed, but we also wanted to try to find a way, if we could, to help people currently serving, mm. to get the kind of help, advice and information that we hadn't been able to get to try to help them maybe keep their careers if they could or you'd, to give them a, an idea of where they might go for legal advice or what their rights might be or, you know, how to protect themselves. That was one thing we wanted to do. And then the other thing, uh, the, the key was, yeah, we wanted to reach out to other people who had lost their careers just to kind of have someone as a sounding board and to mm. share those experiences with someone because that, that was the overwhelming sense of, oh, my gosh, I'm kind of the only person, I'm the only one that's been through this. Yeah. So to find others who'd been through it, that was really, that was very profound. And I think it was really interesting because most of us, even though, yes, we all had the commonality of having been in the forces, most of us would not naturally have ever made each other's acquaintance. Mm -hmm. We just wouldn't. Yeah. So it was weird because, you know, you've got this disparate group of, of lost souls um, meeting and coalescing into this overwhelming sense of anger and injustice that was the biggest thing for me personally. I cannot stand injustice of any type. It just renders me insanely mad. I can't stand it. So for me, it was to do with, you know, wanting to rectify a, a terrible, terrible injustice that had been meted out to dozens or possibly hundreds or even thousands of people who voluntarily op opted to serve their country. Yeah. Nothing has changed. Yeah. You are the same person, the same comrade, the same colleague, the same nurse, chef, gunner, fighter pilot, submariner, driver that you've ever been. It doesn't so, have a bearing on your job. No. No. So that's what we wanted. We wanted people to know that whether you liked or disliked gay people, mm -hmm. and this was an interesting thing with Stonewall that I found when, you know, Stonewall were, were first kind of approached. Mm -hmm. Uh, for help and support and they were a bit anti at first but I do always remember one person there because um, it was in the days of Angela Mason was the chief exec at the time and Michael Cashman was involved it was only a couple of years after they'd been founded mm -hmm. um, but one of the main workers there was a, a woman called Anya Palmer and I always remember her saying something that I thought was very wonderful actually and she she was very open and honest about it she said I can't imagine any sane person let alone any sane gay person wanting to go into an organisation like the military, you know. She said, I just think it's crazy. And she's a total pacifist and all of those things, which I completely understood. But what she'd said was, but I will absolutely fight to the death to defend the right of any gay person who wishes to and who has all the prerequisite skills. I will defend their right to do so, even if I think they're completely mad. And I loved that. That was very interesting that somebody would be prepared to... Um, to back you and support you even if they didn't understand you so the ban was overturned in the year 2000 yeah. how on earth did you feel when you heard that news oh gosh it's another one of those strange um again a, a real pull of emotions you know very extreme opposite of emotions i remember exactly where i was i knew it was coming because we'd all been told because we knew after 1999 when the european court had basically said this is unsustainable you are breaking these people's um rights as human beings to a private life so we knew it was coming um but i'll, I'll always remember exactly where i was it was one of those you know jfk princess diana um 
moments. You mm-hmm. know where you were and who you were with. And uh, when I was I was driving back, um, I'd been over to Ireland with my lovely friend Joseph, um, and we were driving through Snowdonia into a, a very ferocious snowstorm. Because it was January the twelfth, and it was one of those snowstorms that looked like the very first Star Wars movie. That amazing effect when all the stars come whizzing towards you mm-hmm. horizontally. I always remember it. And uh, he was dozing off, and I, I probably shouldn't scream too loud to, in front of the microphone and deafen you. But I literally, when I heard it, and they were saying, you know, the Secretary of State for Defence, Jeff Hoon, and da, 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 and I let out a sort of, I'll lean back from the microphone, I let out a, yes, like that. <laughs> and Joseph's all, what, what, what's going on? And I said, it's done, at last. So it was a very strange mix of, mm. even though we knew it was going to happen, absolute elation and shock that mm. we did this. And I know it wasn't technically us but it was rank outsiders that precipitated it and set it all going yeah. i mean it was ed hall's legal armed forces legal challenge group that actually took it to the to that point but we had initiated it you know mm. he was like he broke away from the rank outsiders thing to make this happen but it was mixed with um such sorrow and regret because unfortunately for me um they talked about a few people did go straight back in which i thought was amazing you know people had only just been thrown out decided to go back in and, and went back in and went on to very good careers and you know were very happy mm-hmm. for me at the time it was just so annoying um i don't i'll be honest i don't know would i have gone back in i don't know but i didn't have the choice and that really annoyed me and the reason i didn't have the choice was to join the qas as a trained nurse you had to be aged between 18 and 38 i was 39 39 and a couple of months literally right and so i would not be allowed to join back in even if i wanted to say look you shouldn't have sacked me let me back in let me finish what i started and carry on mm-hmm. so that was annoying but i'm, I'm not gonna lie i i may not have wanted to because as i say it's a very small world and i was always aware there still might be some people might be a bit weird or a bit anti mm-hmm. I, I just don't know and i guess if the, the choice was made for you like you say you wouldn't have been able to so makes it harder doesn't it to sit here now and think would i would i not have gone back you didn't have the option so who knows what would have happened and that must have been a real as she said like a real mix of emotions of thank goodness that that is now gone but you know sadness i guess as well that it it was in place when you were there yeah and it's you know it's like nowadays when i meet with um you know people serving now and um it's such a strange again it's it's a real weird feeling so um i've met quite a few people who are now serving openly uh, uh, you know right across the spectrum of lgbtqia whatever and i've met some people who even look at you and say i didn't even know there ever been a ban and that oh what mixed feelings as part of me thinks um okay in a way that's great in a way, that is great. That you've gone to a recruiting office and it's not a bar and in you come. Mm-hmm. And I'm, nobody's saying it's perfect yet. Nobody's saying that. But my goodness, in such a short period of time, the progression that has been made is superb. It's just incredible. And absolutely, the great thing was the, 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 the really... The huge relief was, although we deep down always knew it shouldn't be a problem, having been told by all the crusty old fogey farts for decades, oh, you know, the rank and file, they'll all leave in their droves if you force them to to work with these people. They won't tolerate it, you know. The fact that the forces did not implode and, you know, most people have adapted and don't have an issue 
Uh, I guess I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's much, much better than people ever thought. Mm -hmm. And it went very well. So all of that is lovely. But yes, there is that side of me that is just like, oh, God, you know, you're so lucky. It's not exactly resentment, but there's a deep sorrow Mm. that I will never get to experience serving in a military that would accept you and allow you to go to uh, regimental dinners or to live in accommodation with your same-sex partner or wife or husband or take them to a regimental dinner or a ball. Um, yeah, there, there's a kind of there's a kind of envy, I suppose, and a uh-huh. sorrow um, that is, yeah, you know, and you think, damn it, you know, why, why could I not have had that? But th- but then that's tempered equally again by, yes, a sense of enormous pride mm-hmm. that with Robert and I daring to put our heads above the para- parapet sorry, and start this thing off, you know, thank goodness we did. Because had we not, I think it would have been many years later yeah. that that ban would have fallen. I think it would have fallen, obviously. I mean, as you start getting things like equal age of consent, uh, civil partnership, then equal marriage... As those things were having, you know, happening along in tandem in civil society, I do think the military would have eventually caught up. But the very nature of the military being very institutionalised, very old-fashioned, very hierarchical, and structured in that way, and with the constant obsession, quite rightly, um, about you know um, order, and it, you know, we don't want anything that's going to rock the status quo because we need to know that we can function in the right way. I think we. If we hadn't been there, it would have been quite some years later, which therefore would have meant many more people's lives being ruined. So yeah. uh, I'm very proud of what we did. Mm, as you should be. And and actually, I think it is a real shame that people that you've spoken to go, oh, I didn't even know there was a ban because really we should know our queer history and be able to go, I know that that happened. And to say that only happened really, really recently. Yeah. And to be able to sit and look at people like you and say thank you you know you because of the things that you've done you have certainly paved the way to help those soldiers that identifies lgbtq plus be there in the first place because if you hadn't have been so open about your experiences if you hadn't have wanted to do something about it yes at the time it was because it felt unjust and unfair because you had the courage to do that, that is the only reason now why those people can do that. And, you know, we're talking about it in the context of the military, but just in general, you know, the it, being homosexual was illegal in the country completely. And it's the people that have come before me that have helped me now be able to live my life in the way that I am. And we can never forget that, because if we do forget that, that is when we are at risk of, of going backwards, because we come we become complacent. And think that that will never happen again. And like we spoke about at the beginning, you know, we are now living in a time where things are moving forward and backwards at the same time, which is really quite baffling. And if we forget our history, we just make the same mistakes again and again and again. And it's a real shame that people don't sometimes know that. That's why I wanted to have these conversations to be able to have them documented so people can listen and go, I didn't. I didn't realise that was happening at the time. So it's incredible that you had the courage to be able to make that change. Thank you. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, you know, when people like yourself are wanting to record these things, I, I'm enormously grateful because you, you do want, 
it's great that people move on. Uh, it is fantastic. But mm. yes, I totally agree. I, I, I mean, I always loved history at school anyway. It just fascinates me. And I totally agree with you. Unfortunately, we seem never to learn. But you have to hope that each time something comes up and something scary and retrograde is going to happen, that enough people go, oh, no, 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 hang on, and will resist mm. and push through. It does worry me when you see these very right-wing people getting into power. Um, most of them, or many of them, usually are anti-LGBT. Mm-hmm. They are. Mm-hmm. It goes with the territory. And so if yeah. they're getting the power, they start rolling back those freedoms. It's just it's a matter very, of time, It's very, very dangerous. Yeah. Where can people buy your book, This Queer Angel? I've read it. I loved it. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, so you can still buy it through Amazon. Um, and you can buy it as an ebook or preferably a paperback. Um, it is still available. And I think most sort of gay type bookshops uh, like Common Press and Gay's the Word, if they don't stock it, would certainly probably order it in for you. Mm-hmm. Basically, much as a yeah corporate giant, oh no, I'm, what self-respecting lesbian could I possibly be telling <laughs> you to go to Amazon? But no, it's that is probably the quickest and easiest place. And they do have... There's alternatives where you can buy them uh, through the different bookshops um, online. So, yeah, please do. (laughs) Elaine Chambers, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's been wonderful to hear you talk. And thank you. Thank you for asking me. It's been great. You've been listening to Passing Out the Podcast, hosted by James Robert Moore and produced by Peter Holland for Rebel Productions. Follow us on Twitter at Passing Out Pod and on Instagram at Passing Out Podcast. Passing Out the Podcast is not affiliated with the British Army or any other military organisation.